0: from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com.
1: Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snack.
2: long as he did, he was 36 years old. Out of him Were legends But no matter How many tales Were told of success The of rock and roll. List for the show the next day, and I told him I wasn't going. We're having a nice time. I said it was really good to see you. Why would I want to ruin that vibe by going to one of your gigs? He laughed. Yeah, he told me. You're probably right.
3: Oh man. Mike Edison. Uh Gigi Allen died last night. He will be live in studio, Mike Edison fellow heritage radio uh network host who just has a book coming out called your complete disappointment which he's not (laughs) but um i'm excited to have him in here he's got he brought his theremin which i think might be the first theremin on snacky tunes we're getting a lot of firsts we had a harp uh a couple weeks ago um it's good to be back in the studio um we are here for the month of may um, it's been quite an exciting time to say the least, but first and foremost, uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Kavita Milu, Hi. all the way from <laughs> Berlin. Um, I internet stalked Kavita, uh, well, I don't know if I'd say internet stalked. I discovered you one sleepless morning in Berlin, uh, a couple of years ago when, uh, I was there visiting and, and couldn't sleep and was just kinda of diving deep into Instagram and found uh and found you and found oh. your pro server. and I think it was for Mother's Meal.
4: It was for Mother's Mother, yeah. Yeah,
3: Mother's Mother. Um which was and, and what was that concept?
4: Um, So it was basically a dinner club which celebrated the food of immigrants who'd moved to Berlin by getting them to cook the meals of their mothers and their grandmothers.
3: Which is such an amazing uh, concept. It would never work as like a restaurant because if you had to cook like everyone's type of cuisine for their mothers, you'd have like the biggest spice pantry and like one one of each. That's Um, true. But um, I, you know, it, it was like when I was, oh, this is an interesting concept. And then the more um, I learned about you and the deeper that I dove, the more impressed I became. And then Aww, I was like, that's so sweet. And then I was like, can we just hang out? Um, but then um, we were gracious and invited uh, my brother and I and our friends, Paul and Sean, um, over to the Breakfast uh uh, meal which was another interesting concept which was kind of integrating um, the Turkish community into the larger Berlin community which was a super amazing uh, idea and it was 40 spots and 40 nights, right?
4: Um, it was, the, you're talking about the Ramadan, yeah. the the Ramadan break yeah. that we did. Yeah. Well, as a
3: Jew, we call it break fast. And I know. Oh. It, like, it, it, I mean, break fast is like <laughs> how we like do Yom Kippur. Like, it doesn't necessarily translate. but the same concept with the, for sundown. Yeah,
4: they basically do. So there's like these, this uh, organization, like Turkish community organization in Koyatsberg, and they do these dinners inviting community members to come and break fast together every day. So we did one in the market hall where I do a lot of my events. And that's where you guys came. It was kind of fun. Yeah. They did, like, music. It was great. There was great lamb. There was a
3: really beautiful um, couscous raisin dish, too, that mm-hmm. I, I remember. And then we watched um, World Cup in the Spiti, like, on the corner. That's and, true. And then, oddly enough, when I was there visiting uh, my girlfriend... Uh, we were trying to find a bar on New Year's Eve, and we went back to that place because it was the only place where we could buy a drink. Every <laughs> All the other bars were closed because they were, like, setting up for, for New Year's Eve. Aye. And I was like, I might be the only person in Berlin who has, like, hung out here and drank twice. <laughs> and like, oh, yeah, my local spot. <laughs> um, but before we kind of get into, like, all the stuff you're doing, um, it, it would be great uh, to kind of give people your background, how you ended up in Berlin uh, just okay. and, and how you kind of ended up um, – what I like to introduce you as is like the queen of the independent food scene in Berlin.
4: Oh, yeah. that's a good title. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I actually ended up in Berlin for love. I had, So good. <laughs> <laughs> I had um, a great career in advertising, as you can probably tell from my accent. I'm yeah. not German. No. I'm British, and um, and yeah, I was working in advertising, and really enjoyed it. Met this guy, fell in love with him, decided to move to Berlin. Didn't tell my family; had to kind of lie and say that I would move for my um, advertising job. And then when I was like in this world of lies already, I thought that it might be a good chance for me to kind of follow the dream without disappointing my immigrant parents. So, the dream was always to do something with food, and. Um, that's how I kind of like got into it. Berlin is a great place, I think, to like start up little projects. You don't have much financial pressure there. People are super open-minded. So I started with Mother's Mother, which was that dinner concept um, that you heard about. Mm-hmm. And then um, about three years ago, I opened a food market called Street Food Thursday, which takes place every Thursday night um it's in an old market hall which um three of my friends bought about 5 years ago and um it's really it's kind of like a smorgasbord, but it's a little bit more roots i would mm-hmm. say i would agree and it's and we have like 55 um selling points
3: Let, let's let's talk about that so like 3 years ago what was kind of like the food scene in uh berlin
4: um okay well can we go a bit, a little bit before three yeah, years ago? Yeah, we can go. To,
3: just take us through it. <laughs> Educate us, if so, you will.
4: So I would say, like, Berlin was pretty much a war zone up until around 30 years ago. So until the wall came down, when the wall was up, Berlin, West Berlin was an island. Mm-hmm. And there were people in West Berlin who could spend money on food, but they were very traditional, very conservative. They were wanted to go to, like, fancy restaurants with white tablecloths. And it was all about French cuisine. And they were pretty much closed off from the rest of the world um, it was a struggle to get like a banana or right. if you were in east germany like you didn't know what a banana was right you couldn't get access to good coffee like forget about the kiwi like 80s boom like that shit just wasn't yep. in your life you know right. so so the wall um when it came down i think there was this There was this sense of urgency to like appreciate global food right Mm -hmm. and it wasn't necessarily about going back into german cuisine it was about discovering all of that food that the rest of europe had already discovered like thai food indian food and chinese food kind of getting into that in, in the 90s and so on so up until a few years ago i would say that the food scene in berlin was pretty traditional it was pretty old school like Chefs still have to go through an amazing, like, outbuilding or education. Mm-hmm. It takes five years to be a chef. And I meet young kids who are so well trained in their fourth year, but still won't call themselves a chef. Right. Like, it's pretty old school. And I think in the... Which some
3: would argue that that's still not a bad way to go.
4: Oh, no. I think it's a pretty great way to go. The only problem is, is that we don't have that many inspiring, like mentor chefs around Mm. and that was and that's i think that's been the biggest thing that has changed like in this surge of of expat migration to berlin like all of these people who've like moved from new york or london or other big cities they kind of missed the food culture that they would left behind and craved that and got into like, we call them Quereinsteigers, which means, like, stepping into the business sideways. Mm. Um, it's kind of a rude word in Germany. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, like, loads of people who who hadn't worked in, like, the food industry started to um, get into it somehow, started to recreate things that they missed from home. So it's been an exciting time. And, the, and when we opened the market, we, like... It's it's almost it's a, almost a social project in it in a sense. It's almost like an informal incubator. Like a lot of the people who we give space to in that project are people who have a dream to open a restaurant at some point, mm. or want to open a ca- catering company, or want to be a celebrity chef, and they um, started there. So it's so a real community spirit.
3: What it, what's your select? I mean, I guess it probably evolved, but like, what is your selection process for uh, allowing? people is it like kind of like first come first serve is it curated is it a mix of both like is a sliding scale like how does it work
4: um the great thing about berlin is that um again like you probably know the financial pressures are nothing like london or new york so right. you have like time to spend nurturing community yeah. so at the beginning um of the market i was doing a lot of like Fi- trying to find those people and trying to convince them that they could create a business in this way mm-hmm. but um now it's become so popular that we get a lot of people coming to us and then we do like a tasting sessions we try to look at people who have a bigger picture in mind and give them an opportunity to um to start we do a, we give them a lot of support and it's really about like quality and character to be honest that that's our selection in a way
3: Um, And then when do you, do you taste, do you have to taste the food before they come in or how does that work?
4: Oh, we definitely did tasting the food. That's why I put on 20 kilos in the past three and a half years. (laughs) Do a lot of tasting of foods in my life.
3: And and then, I mean, and then kind of, um, you know, there's like uh, Grand Central Market out in LA. They do a really good job of like kind of guiding, guiding people in and they've even taken some of the businesses because that were in there and kind of tried to help update them or like, you know, massage what works will you uh, ever encounter um chefs or restaurateurs or kind of concepts that are like you know you're not ready but like here's what we think you know we'll take to you know kind of guide you to to be ready to have a stall or is there like that type of process as well
4: um it's not so it's like we're all very hands-on so it's not that we have like a structure for these things but we do that by default like if we see someone who comes in we think like okay you're you've got something great about you, like, we think that you could be a part of this in the future, then we'll be in contact, we'll connect them to, like, people, we'll support them, you know? It's, like, it's very community.
3: Um, And then what is, like, one of, like, the, like, you know, uh, success stories that you're, like, most proud of that, like, started there and now it's kind of outgrown the market and gone on to, you know, something uh, bigger and better?
4: Um, We have a lady called Fraulein Kimchi. And that means Great. like,
3: I, I mean, <laughs> go on, explain it. But what a name.
4: <laughs> so, so she's really cool. She actually moved to Berlin as an opera singer because her opera teacher mo- like um, moved to Berlin. She comes from L.A. originally, but she's got Korean roots and she married um, Korean food with Bavarian food. And she wears a dirndl. She's like this complete like characterful individual. And she started a dish called um, Kimchi Käse Which is, Kirselspätzle is like a, do you know that here? It's like Mm. a kind of a German pasta in a way. Okay. It's very like carby. Spätzle. Spätzle. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So it's like cheese spätzle. Yes. Okay. But with kimchi. Woo. Super good. And she ended up on one of these kind of like, um, one of these tv shows you know where she had to like dragon's den style thing where uh-huh. she had to pitch <laughs> a thing and get money to open a restaurant and a oh, line you guys call it dragon's
3: den we have like shark tank oh, dragons no but dragon's den Dragon. is like no i just think it's fine keep going. <laughs> <laughs> keep going
4: so she um yeah she she opened her restaurant she started her own product line and yeah but there's actually quite a few of those i think we're we have, like, quite a few people who've opened their own brick and mortars now. So we had the first Peruvian restaurant that just opened up that started with us um, for a year and a half. We had an Irish guy who opened the first, like, Irish pie shop in Berlin. Um, who else? We had, um, an in like, a British guy who was doing British Indian food. He made this naanwich, and he's just opened his own brick and mortar too, so... We have some really cool Korean Berlin kids mm. who are also... They started with us and now have opened a little Imbus in in um, Charlottenburg, too. So, yeah.
3: Um, well, I mean, in th- this is just one of your projects. And I, I want to talk about the project you're here for um, after the break. But but I want to talk about Burgers and Hip Hop. Oh, uh, okay. Which <laughs> is like... Um, uh, which I... Uh, Saw for the very first time. We, you and I have a good history of, like, always just missing each other. Um, uh, but I did was able to make it out to burgers and hip-hop, which uh, is, like, I'll say from my outside, and then you can say what it is. It starts off with, like, eight to ten, like, different burgers, which are all in competition. On top of that, there's, like, a hip-hop dance battle. Um, on top of that, there's, like, really clever, like, play on words that are, like, classic, like, kind of um, lines from, like, 90s hip-hop, like, um, protect your spec. Uh, and then that all happens when the sun is up, and then it's, it goes to like I don't know, eight a.m. like two thousand person dance party, yeah, so something like that. That's
4: a very good explanation. Yeah, um, except it's around three thousand people.
3: Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, where did you know the burger trend in New York has kind of like you know you know reached its peak? Every once in a while, you'll see like a listicle of like top fifteen burgers to you yeah. to New York. You know, but like. Um, you you have really kind of taken that and, and kind of like just pushed it to like beyond anything that I think you can be um, imagined. Um, you know how did how did that come about? And then you know how do you continue to kind of like push that that forward?
4: Okay, well, um, let me just tell you that the burger trend is so over in Berlin too, okay. but the party is just so good that people keep coming back. Um, so the they're reason like why- they're like
3: fuck a burger, we love a good party. <laughs>
4: Well, it's kind of like—I mean, if I'm honest with you—the reason why I started it was because I'm from London. I like my—I like a good hip hop party. Yeah. I moved to like techno central. <laughs> yes. I was a little done with like um, minimal moves, dance moves.
3: Donner and disco, though—that's <laughs> our next party. <laughs> oh,
4: but I um, so I wanted to have like a hip hop party that also wasn't like. I don't know if you've ever been to a city that doesn't have, like, a real hip-hop culture and gone to a hip-hop party. It's just the type of party that you never want to go to. It's filled (laughs) with dudes, like, standing on the side, nodding their head. They play, like, old-school rap, respected music, which nobody can dance to. Yeah. So it's not... um, Those are not the parties that I want to go to. If I wanted to dance to, like, Ja Rule and 50 Cent and maybe a bit of Ashanti and 112 and so on. so it basically started by making a party that I wanted um, me and my friends to party at had to involve food I wanted to like choose something democratic that I could involve all of my chef friends in and all of like our different independent food businesses and restaurants in that had like a level playing field that they could get involved so that's what we do we invite like restaurants and we invite some of our food vendors and even like some Michelin star restaurants to come over and everybody makes a burger and we now, have a burger they,
3: battle. Now, are they all known for their burgers, or is it? No. Okay, that's what I love. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, I love too.
4: So, I mean, now they're becoming known for their burgers. So, the Bao Burger, which I had, that was um, that was basically like I. So, friends of mine opened a Vietnamese restaurant, and um, and it was a really cool Vietnamese restaurant, and I really wanted them to be a part of the burgers on hip hop, and, and we were like, okay, look. How are you gonna do it? Make a Vietnamese burger. So they made this Vietnamese burger that was like the, for the second or third party, and that burger is just like the Asian burger scene in Berlin is insane now. Like they just changed the game completely.
3: Which is which is uh, amazing, and and one of the things. Um... That's really great. It's like, and we've talked about it on the show before, especially because it's such a New York-centric show, is that like, the pressures to experiment yeah. and take risks are so limited sometimes. But when you hear about the, obviously, from the, the stories you've told us, it's just like you can just like roll the dice, and you have time for it to catch on. Like, You don't like, just make like 10 of them, and if it doesn't go well, it's like you have like months for these things to adapt. And you also have the platform, yeah. too. Um, we're going to take a quick Musical break, and then we're going to talk about your latest endeavor. Okay, um, great. Um, we're going to play a song from We Are Augustines, who are one of our favorite bands. Who go just by Augustines now, um, and then we'll be back with more uh, live on Snacky Tunes.
1: Yay. <laughs>
3: Uh, I forgot but the Boros Bunker, the famed art program was like a banana depot for some time. <laughs> it was like an internment camp, a banana bunker, a techno club in the 90s and now home to like one of the best like German art collections.
4: Yeah, it's so it is. Then so that maybe
3: that's where the first bananas went but <laughs> bananas were discovered. That could be. Um so all of this is great but all this seems to have been leading up to kind of your newest project. Yes. Um do you want to kind of like give a brief overview and kind of like why you're also like in the the States right now as well?
4: Okay. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm working on a new project. Um, it's going to be the biggest project of my life. It's much bigger than me, even though I put on those extra 20 kilos. (laughs) It's called, um, Berlin and it's going to be a food market hall sharing the food culture of immigrants and refugees that have settled in Berlin. Um, and it kind of came out of, like, um, a development that happened in the last one and a half years where I was hit with the fact that, that we really did a good job at creating this amazing market, creating this amazing foodie community, and we've really benefited from the area that we created this new foodie movement in. But just like many kind of similar food scenes in other parts of Europe or maybe the States we've really isolated ourselves from the community that we live in. So we created almost like a foodie ghetto in a way. Mm. And um, and it's kind of sad because, you know, the majority of immigrants that live in our neighbourhood ha- have Turkish and Lebanese backgrounds. And they're two immigrant groups which have such a rich food culture and such a rich food heritage And the second generation, so the kids of of the people who moved over, they still are rooted to their culture through their food. And somehow we failed to integrate them into our project. And I think um, it's a shame. It's also a shame for Berlin at the moment because um, we're at the cusp of almost like identifying what our food culture is and what our food culture represents. And I think if we don't create that border uh, that create that kind of like link bridge between both communities then we fail on ourselves to really create a movement or create an identity which is something great which is something new which is something novel instead of just reciprocating like what's happening in the nordic countries or whatever so um the market hall is going to be a way for i would say our foodie community that are doing great things anyway in berlin to really connect with um immigrant food culture and to almost like elevate like ethnic food cuisine to a point that um it should be at like i think we're of a generation that allows ethnic food to like sit in this subcultural niche where we demand it to be traditional we demand it to be authentic, authentic.
3: yeah <laughs> and, um, and and please define authentic i mean don't define authentic but it's like yeah we've had that discussion yeah. as well
4: and it's kind of um it's limiting it's like not only it's just it's it's sad it's borderline racist but it's also just limiting and i feel like we're in the foodie community in this like food lover community we care so much about like sustainable food movement we care so much about supporting our local farmers our local producers and so on but what do we care about like the neighborhood and like our community and where is our sense of responsibility there and i kind of feel like the role of the chef or or the food entrepreneur has definitely changed in the last decade and we are you know, we have much more responsibility now than we did before. We have much more social responsibility now than we did before. And I think we have to figure out how to stop recreating these foodie ghettos because they are real strong, like, reasons for gentrification and they're negative reasons for gentrification. You know, there's, like, this is, like, but I don't want to speak negatively of this amazing pizza that we just ate, but I just walked from you know, those guys' house, like, 45 minutes away and walked through a very black neighborhood and a very, like, Hasidic Jewish neighborhood, and we're now at a restaurant where there's clearly a difference of the people who were eating here than the people who live in this neighborhood. And, and of course, these are natural things. Like, it's not... I'm not saying that we go into... into opening a project like this, closing out communities. But I don't think we do enough to...
3: Provide an entry point. Yeah. So how are you going out and selecting your vendors, and how are you going out to find the people that will begin to be your kind of first round of um, food vendors?
4: So we're trying to... Um, the whole project itself is going to take quite a long process. So we aim to open in 2018, um, and we're really focused on the next year and a half and creating... Um, this community, like without the first initial vendors who were there, the suit doesn 't exist, so, as you might know, we have a refugee crisis in in the world right now, but um, particularly in Germany, one point one million refugees arrived in the last twelve months. Um, I since twelve months have a refugee camp fifty meters away from my house. There are six hundred people living in there in one room, in eating, like, shitty airplane food every single day. They don't have access to a kitchen. Like, I mean, it's a shit situation. And it is on our doorstep. Like, I just, like, nobody can close their eyes to that anymore. Um, And so what we're trying to do is we've got one program where we're really trying to find women who are stuck in these refugee camps who will be um, contributing to wider Berlin society, who will be a part of, who are going to be German within a few months... Um, trying to enable them to realize that their great food, their great home cooked food, could be a potential business. So we're doing a lot of outreach with them. We're also going back to like the old school um, restaurateurs who, like Turkish restaurateurs, Lebanese restaurateurs, to connect them with the new generation of chefs to see um, what can what what they kind of work on together. Mm which is, um, what, Kebabistan as well.
3: (laughs) Kebabistan?
4: Kebabistan. So Kebabistan (laughs) is like, um, so like you said, the burger hype, kind of over. Yeah. And also, like, the great thing, like, integration, Germany's um, integration history has not been that great. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that Germans can be really proud of is, like, the kebab. And the kebab is like... I dream about it.
3: (laughs) I, I, I demand at least, like... One a day when I I'm mean,
4: there. Yeah. I not like even even like the ultra right wing in Germany is eating a kebab with joy. So there is like a real positive integration story that um, the kebab represents in a way. Um, and I feel like the kebab is something that that Berlin could really own, you know, and it's like it's it's much better than a burger. And the kebab. so basically Kebabistan is a party that we're going to start um In July, where we bring together like the old grill masters who opened like the first Adana kebab houses and Duna kebab houses in the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s. And then we bring them um, together with like the young, great, um, innovative foodie chefs who are opening restaurants now. And they're going to do a um, kebab like grill down and then we're going to have a big hip hop. Gotta have music oh list. gotta have it
3: all <laughs> um, oh, this is this is amazing i, I mean i can't i, I can't wait and I, I really can't wait to see how the product the project evolves as well including the integration and it's great that it's going to take two years because you know to tell that story right so it doesn't seem like you're gentrifying or even just co-opting it's going to have to take a lot of ownership from people who might not feel ownership in the uh. community yet
4: yeah and it's and it's it's a, like community building is a process it's nothing that doesn't happen overnight and you know the concept is like at the moment it's an idea and it's a vision and that concept is going to be owned by the people who have business there and they have an influence on that concept so they will decide how it's going to be in a way that I haven't thought about right right now so Uh, over the next year and a half you know maybe if I come back here in a year and a half to talk about the project again it's got a whole different um... I'll just
3: come to Berlin to interview you (laughs) now that we're doing uh, Snacky Tunes on the road I'm just going to come and do it and be great to talk to some of the chefs too as well
4: yeah definitely you should totally track that yeah. The progress of what's going to happen in Berlin in the next few yeah, years. Yeah, maybe
3: we can just do Collins in the in the coming months.
4: Yes, yes. we should do that.
3: Um, all right, well, we've got an anti-Mike Edison out there in the um. hallway who wants to get on. So um, <laughs> I want I mean, we could talk forever, but, you know, thank you for, for chatting with us. I know I'll, I'll have you, have you, you back on. me. Oh, my God. This is, well, we wanted to do this, like, uh... At the end of last year, <laughs> here we are. I, it was it was worth the wait, especially to be able to talk about Aww. the project. Um, where can people find information about the market, burgers and hip-hop, you, um, you know?
4: Okay, so you can find out about Souk Berlin. At the moment, we've got a website coming up, soukberlin.com. We've also just started our Instagram, Souk Berlin. Um, all of the projects like Burgers and Hip-Hop, Street Food Thursday, you can find on Facebook. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Kavita Goodstar. Which
3: is how I found you in the first <laughs> place. Um, we have a track coming up by Light Asylum, who absolutely threw it down in here. And then we've got Mike Edison to talk about his new book, um, play the first ever Snacky Toons Theremin, and just talk about being a general degenerate. Does that <laughs> sound about right, Mike? General degenerate. Yeah, he's kind of nodding. Um, all right, here we are with Light Asylum, and we'll be, we'll be right back.
0: We came in search of, of the immortality, the to be like God, to be like like And more human. the of our
1: vengeance. This is of our vengeance. This of our I'm <laughs> sorry.
3: On Tuesday, May 17th, please join Snacky Tunes for the 9th Annual Barbecue Blowout. Our inaugural chefs are Kings County Imperial with Beats and Rhythms by Domino Records. Tickets are $10 in advance at BBQ Blowout, May 2016.eventbrite.com. Tickets include a plate of food and a complimentary Brooklyn Brewery. We're happy to announce returning partners of Nikki Digital and Heritage Radio Network. We hope to see you there. Yes, the 9th Annual Barbecue Blowout will be back. Uh, A week from Tuesday, please get your tickets Uh, We've moved location to the drink, but everyone else is still good And Kings County Imperial will be on the show next week Um, Very, very excited, we'll be announcing the menu this week But enough about us, Mike Edison, welcome to Snacky Tunes Thanks for hanging out Oh, theremin action And uh, Mickey Finn on the keys This is great Um, So we have been sharing... uh, a Sunday afternoon slot, but I believe this is your first time on the show.
2: This is my first time on the show. I'm really, really glad glad to be here. And um, it's, <laughs> it's um, we're all part of that like must uh, watch TV thing with the Snacky Tunes, the Arts and Seizures, my show. And I was on Kathy Irway show today too. Eat your words. So well,
3: you know, Kathy, her first time on the sh- on the network was on our show, and then they heard her voice, and they were like, "Well, just you know." You sound nice. (laughs) You sound nice. (laughs) Those were the days when that's all it took. I mean, (laughs) kind of. But um, you have a new book out. But before we kind of get to the book, which we have ample time to do, um, it would be great to give a little bit of a history of, of who you are and how you got here because you have so many uh, checkered points on your past. Um, <laughs> why don't we uh, just kind of start with, um, oh, I don't know, High Times?
2: Um, yeah. Someone once said, that's not a resume. That's a crime scene. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was uh, the publisher of High Times Magazine and a very clear case of be careful of what you wish for. Yeah. The worst, worst fucking job I ever how had. How long did you last there? Or Yeah. Well, no, no, <laughs> <enough>. yeah. <laughs> no, no. Fair enough. Yeah, No, no. Uh, I, used, I wrote for them in the '80s, and I loved it. I wrote this column called "Shoot the Tube," it was about politics on television. And I was friends with everybody. And then I sort of, you know, tootled off, and I had this other career. I was a business journalist. I was touring my band. I wrote for other magazines. And they kind of had to hunted me out to run the shop, which was great. And the second I got there and I got hired, everybody said, "Fuck you, dude! You're a suit." <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, really. A week before, I was their rock and roll buddy. Yeah. The second I got hired to be the boss, I was a crypto fascist. Right. <laughs>
3: Um, So, I mean, what are, like, some of, like, the unexpected pitfalls of working at high times?
2: Well, um, and this is my first book is largely about this, or in part, anyway, I have fun everywhere I go. Which Um, is a great read. um, Thank you very much. Uh, Which is
3: also a great philosophy, because I feel like I also try to have fun everywhere I go.
2: Consider the alternative.
3: Yeah, I mean there there is no alternative. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I have a miserable
2: time everywhere I go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my new my new book, uh, which brought us here today, you are a complete disappointment. One of the the real messages is about it is yeah, I know because right? everybody everybody laughs and then you put, then wait then you say I'm sorry, I'm laughing, Mike. <laughs> But it's it's true. Those are my father's last words to me, literally, oh, on his sorry, deathbed. We, we're we're <laughs> going to get there. I know, and you're still <laughs> laughing <laughs> um, because no, cause, because because it, it it is it is funny in its you know time <laughs> tragedy plus time comedy um, high times. You know, the first day I got there, it, the first line of "I have fun everywhere I go" is. The next person who suggests putting Bob Marley on the cover is going to be looking for a new job. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was. It was like Groundhog Day over there. Yeah. Like every day. It's like, guys, OK, no, we're not doing another Pink Floyd I mean, is it fucking more just, issue. just like
3: short-term memory loss. Uh,
2: you would have the same meeting every day.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, well, you know, instead of like, let's, let's stick with the theme of like, UFO everywhere you go. It's like, what were some of the triumphs um, at high times?
2: Well, well probably I mean, the, the great story that came out of that is when um, Ozzy Osbourne was on the cover. And, um, and Ozzy stole my pot, the motherfucker, you know. And I, I love Ozzy Osbourne. I'm a huge Black Sabbath fan. I, th- I think, you know, everybody is, which was the whole point. And when he wanted to be on the cover of High Times, it was at a low point of his career. It was before MTV had picked up the Osbourne right. TV show. And Black Sabbath was in various incarnations and hadn't really been taken that seriously. They were kind of on the county fair circuit. and. You know, the high times, I said, we we should put him on the cover. Of course we, we will. Because to stoners, Ozzy's like Elvis, you know. Right. Right? <laughs> this is great. This is our Elvis. We definitely want to do this. But he's got to pose with pot because that's part of the high Times shtick. So the problem is initially there was a rift between the old school hippies in the office who said you cannot put Ozzy Osbourne on the cover because he's heavy metal. Yeah. And you're going to ruin, you're going to destroy high times, which was obviously ridiculous. And, you know, we, you know. Ozzy came in. We, you know, I obviously won the day with this. How are you not going to put Ozzy in the cover? And he agreed to whatever we wanted to do. I mean, they were really looking for it. No one was taking him seriously. He wasn't right. going to be on Spin or Rolling Stone at the time. We had a big skull filled with pot. That was like the main prop. It was like the centerpiece of this <laughs> shoot. And I'm going to tell, tell you a secret now, how it works over there. And that is, so we got like a couple pounds of reefer, and we kind of rent the weed. You buy a little bit. You buy a few ounces. It's expensive. It's $400, $500 yeah. an ounce. You buy a couple ounces. You rent the rest. The guy who brings you the weed is I'm happy. sorry. Who's in the rental weed business? Uh, your local dealer who kind of wants his nom de guerre to say, like, you know, weed courtesy, you know, you know 420 Chronic Army or you know, whatever it is. And, and they're happy to do it. And they come by with, like, these great, beautiful, intact buds. And it's pretty. And, you know, and everybody's happy to smoke some centerfold weed. It's, it's just good for everybody. <laughs> (laughs) Um, So what happens is, though, at the end of the story, though, you you weigh the pot when it starts, and then you weigh the pot when you're done, and you expect it to be a little bit lighter because a little bit got lost. Um, We buy pot. We're smoking some pot during the whole thing. We're smoking some joints. The thing was like a pound light. Yeah. Okay? Like like, like a lot. I mean, it was tough times. For Ozzy. Like, this <laughs> is pre-everything. Ozzy could have asked for anything he wanted, and we would have given it to him. Right. But in- instead, what I got was the pot dealer saying, dude, you owe me $5,000. Oh. Okay, problem. Because I didn't, you know. Yeah. Big, big, big problem. And the way high times was, and I never met a much more backstabbing, motherfucking paranoid people in my life. You know, it's like, you think pot culture is, like, mellow and stuff? And it's not. It's, like, paranoid. Yeah. And, and And people are like, jockeying for a position, you, you know. And it was just this terrible, terrible thing, but... um. I dropped a dime. I did it. I dropped a dime on, on, on Ozzy, and I called Page Six, and the reporter said, that's I never said he stole the pot, okay? I don't, you know. Yeah. I found out later it was, like, his guys, like, stuffing, like, in yeah. a roadie, and they were, like, all stuffing their pockets yeah. with it. Dude, I would have given them anything they wanted. Yeah. Love Ozzy. Just ask. Right. There's no reason to rip off my fucking weed. Right. Right? So... It ran huge in page six with a cover of the magazine. I mean, it was like a huge triumph. huge. You know, and I'm like, fuck the guy. It's like, he stole my weed, you know? Oh, it was huge. Howard Stern was talking about it. It was like on every radio. The thing sold more copies than any other magazine in the history of high times up until that point, certainly. And I guess the punchline is when Sharon called me on the phone. Yeah. So aside from all this, I got yelled at by Sharon Osborne. Oh, okay. And lived to tell the tale. She uh, says, <laughs> make it die. I said, I've gotten what I want. Yeah. Tell, tell your boy not to steal my weed.
3: Um, speaking, I know that you live with with uh, Bob uh, Bob Marley, but like what do you think now of Marley natural
2: than like the branded weed game I uh, I think, I think it 's great I think you know I mean the question is um, what 's going to happen when Monsanto starts growing weed uh, you know what 's going to happen when it 's Philip of Mars brand weed yeah and on this radio station especially, we talk a lot about commodity mm-hmm. versus artisanal products, and we talk about handcrafted versus uh, you know in the industrial version. Um, you Knows an upside and downside. I think it's great. I think we should be legal. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm very pro stoner. I'm just anti slacker. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. I mean, I think it's a little cynical with the Marley family. Maybe on the other hand, what's more logical?
3: Right. I mean, I feel like that, I mean, it's like Snoop Dogg, Marley. Like, who else is going to like really turn this into like a big brand business? I, I think. I think it's not just going to be
2: Snoop Dogg, and I think at some point the Snoop Dogg thing is going to represent. His brand, which is going to be very specific, and, and he, you know, he's great, but I, I think it's going to be some other high-end luxury thing or something that's a little bit more middle-of-the-road and not-so-gangsta that's going to really take over.
3: Um, one other thing that's really um, great about um, I Have Fun Everywhere I Go is that there's a CD that comes from it, and we played one of the songs that uh, uh, on the opening of the show. Um, how did the record kind of come
2: about as tied into the, the book? Well, we, we started out, and um, play, some, play some incidental jazz, Mickey, Mickey Finn, please. Hit it, Professor. Can, can we do that? That's Mickey, Finn, that's Mickey Finn. World's greatest piano player who I'm on the road with right now. We're gonna get, you're just jumping ahead.
3: We're going to get to all of okay, that. Okay, but
2: this is how it starts, because okay. <laughs> I love the records Jack Kerouac made with Steve Allen. Mm-hmm. These jazz records... You know, with with the Jack Kerouac reading. I don't even like Jack Kerouac. I think he's fucking boring, frankly. But these records he made were so good of him reading. And you ever been to a book reading? I mean, nine out of ten they they suck. There's no reason why an author, because they're good at writing, should also be good at performing. I've been you know, I've been in all these rock and roll bands. I'm used to it. I, I like having the mic in my hand. I like being up there in front of people. So we we play a song. I would love to. The okay. idea was though never be born, come and bring the message. You know, and the trouble we, we keep getting is. Oh, it's a reading, and I'm telling you, nah, it is.
3: Yeah, but yeah, it ain't. All right. So, what's the uh, what's the
2: first song you're gonna play for us? Well,
3: or first, is it gonna be more of a reading?
2: Well, yeah, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a story. Okay, tell us the story. I'm gonna tell you a story. Okay. Okay. And uh, this is from uh, the new book. You are a complete disappointment. And this is what we're taking it on on the road. We're gonna be in San Francisco next week, in L. A., Oakland, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. <laughs> Mickey Finn, want me to give you something in the heavy style, maybe in the key of minor my father was having a hard time speaking he was on his deathbed quite literally, in an Arizona hospital room, the best money could buy, with all sorts of tubes exploding out of his arms, monitors beeping and buzzing, nurses bustling in and out to check the connections and interpret the blizzard of numbers that flashed on and off like Christmas lights on a Matterhorn of rack-mounted biotech, a pinball parlor's worth of LED readouts that could just as easily have read, extra ball, or special when lit. He was breathing erratically through a milky plastic oxygen mask. It collected spittle like the early morning dew, and he waved me over to the bed. I'm glad you're here, he began. There's something I want to tell you. So I sidled up close to hear what he had to say. And there's a soft sucking sound from inside the mask, and the low whistle of an air valve doing its things. His eyes were clear and lucid blue. You, he said, are a complete disappointment and he sucked another lungful of oxygen out of the mask and his eyes opened up like saucers he was just getting started you are a failure he leveled gaining strength you think you are a hot shot in new york writing books but you're not no one wants to read your shit it's obvious you, you don't even like yourself he added before turning to my younger brother the wall street mocker, who was standing next to me wearing a dirty t-shirt from a recent who tour it's been a pleasure to watch you grow up he said to him. My father's breathing had become a Greek chorus of pulmonary angst. He sounded like Darth Vader, if Darth Vader were an old Jewish man dying in a hospital bed. And after another air valve under mezzo, he turned his attention back to me. You are broken, he said, and you need to be fixed. Never mind his immediate challenges, the mask, the tubes, the electrodes, the IV drip, the demoralizing disposable pale green hospital gown, the old man delivered his message right over the plate. You aren't as smart as you think you are, he hacked. And after taking a moment to catch his breath and marshaling every bit of strength he could, leaning forward like the carved wooden mast on a pirate ship and spitting into his oxygen mask, he added, You are the only person in this family who is fat. And if his vitriol were a baseball, they would have said it had some mustard on it. I was speechless. I watched it sail by. Without swinging, as stoic as Kualaiga, the famous cigar store Indian, there wasn't much else I could do. I mean, not to set the bar of what it means to be a minch too low, but there's no way I was going to be in a fight with a breathless, dying man. And the truth is, my father never liked me very much. For years, he railed at me with no attempt to reserve his anger. I resent you because you are having more fun than I did at your age. I didn't begin to have fun till I was 55. I had heard variations of this tune my whole life, recurring themes of jealousy and contempt. When I was 19 and my band was beginning to see some success, we were being booked for tours of Europe and opening up for the Ramones. And he asked, I hate you because you get to live your dreams before I get to live mine. <laughs> and with every new volley, he became more and more agitated. His blood pressure was punching a hole in the sky, and his oxygen level was going south fast. You didn't need a degree in medical engineering to know that the numbers on the readouts weren't the good news we had been hoping for. But then again, seething as he was, he wasn't really helping his own cause. A fresh phalanx of nurses came crashing in like a Navy SEAL team, to try to calm him. And it was fucking scary, and it was fucking weird, although I'm still not sure if it was John Waters weird or David Lynch weird. It certainly wasn't any fun. And then he dropped the bomb, his last great mortal concern. This is what had turned disgust into ire, and ire into top fuel rage. He leaned forward, fighting the trauma team so he could spit it out from behind the oxygen mask, which was now thick with saliva and spew, and he let me have it. I can't believe someone as smart as you likes professional wrestling. And that was the last thing he ever said to me. You know, throughout my childhood, he always made fun of me for what I watched on television. Happy days, good times, whatever. He didn't think the Fonz was cool. But he took special glee in mocking me for watching championship wrestling. It's fake. It's not real grow up. How dumb can you be? But truthfully, at seven years old, I knew in my heart of hearts it wasn't legit. How could it be? We had all heard the rumors that Chief J. Strongbow was really an Italian guy from the Bronx, and even a blind man could see the punches pulled from a mile away. But then, like now, it didn't matter, because wrestling is a world unconfined by the laws and rules and reality the rest of us had to obey. Our last great shared moment my father and I it was July twentieth, nineteen sixty-nine. So when he woke me up to watch the first man land on the moon. I remember it clear as a bell sitting on the edge of my parents' bed, with its soft blue summer cotton sheets, staring at the black and white Philco television set, the blurry image moving haltingly across the screen, and the crackling audio perkling from the tiny speaker, the first transmission from another world. I was in love with the space program, I gaped with the gauzy optimism of exploration, gaga for the gadgetry, and gee whiz of NASA. I still reminisce about the blue NASA jumpsuit I had my picture taken in when I was eight and about how I wanted to be a space captain and fuck Barbarella and all of her friends when I was 16. And after watching the first man land on the moon, my mind was racing with possibilities because even at the cusp of my fifth birthday, I was a man with a vision. Well, that's my version of it. Others might say I was a hopeless dreamer. But looking back, I have come to realize the fundamental difference between how I saw the first moon landing and how my father saw it. He saw expensive hardware and American exceptionalism. I saw adventure. I saw rockets and stars. He wanted to meet the astronauts and ask them what it was like to walk on the moon. I wanted to go there and find out for myself. So what is the difference between
3: John Waters weird and David Lynch weird? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's what you're taking away from this. Oh man, I was I was I was at a Passover seder a few weeks ago, and I always say out in out Long Island, if uh, John Waters were Jewish, that's what pink flamingos would have looked like. <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know, blue blue, blue velvet weird, you know, yeah. blue velvet like. Behind that picket fence is a lot of fucking weirdness, you know everything seems to look okay on, on on the outside, but man, behind the aluminum siding it 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 gets terrifyingly weird uh
3: so from i mean from that story like uh, obviously evolved this book, and um you know where did you know what is the direction you took this in you know uh, and you know what is it that you wanted to kind of tell through uh these stories and you know leave <laughs> with the reader.
2: The book has, has a message. It's got a happy ending. Me, I'm the happy ending, yeah. honestly. And the message is to be the person you want to be, not the person you were told you should be. The idea of this book is that simple pleasures rule, and there's a lot of happiness out there. And if you're smart, not like my dad who couldn't get it, he always worried too much, you know? If, if you can grab this happiness and you can keep it, and you can share it with the people you love, and fretting, you know, and fussing and worrying all the time is just no way to be. My, my brothers once asked me, well, how do you rate success? Mike, one's uh, you know, an investment banker, the other's a lawyer, and I said, I don't know, maybe, like, how much time you spend smiling? That, that's, that's, the, that's the message. You know, you, you know my, my parents were so top-heavy with expectations that I mean, my God, on the guy's deathbed, this is what he's doing, he's screaming at me because of what I watched on TV when I was eight? That's, <laughs>
3: so you know,
2: <laughs> it's kind of fucked up.
3: So, I mean, what advice would you give to uh, maybe kids who are kind of, uh, and maybe that were, like, similar grips from their parents, like, you know, to start to kind of carve out their own World Or like with things that you maybe wish that you had ignored and not listened to that, you know, you ended up throwing off as shackles later on.
2: You know, it took it took a while, honestly. I mean, my my dad was was a bully and a narcissist uh, and, and just really kind of a mean guy. You have to have faith in yourself. Obviously, it's hard when people are swinging at you every which way you go, but you have to believe in your own star. You know, I never thought people say, "Oh, Mike, you're such a rebel," because you know you, you went to art school and you became, you played in these punk rock bands and you know you worked for a dope magazine and a porn magazine. But really, I, what was I really rebelling against? I think I was. To me, it was more moving forward. It was following my own star. If I was rebelling against everything, it's just about watching miserable people around me.
3: Yeah, um, fair enough. Um, can, can we hear something? Can we hear another one? That uh, that was so great. I just want to hear it again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think, I think I think we I think we can handle that. I think, yeah. we, I think we're gonna. Um, Go back. We're going to go back way back a little bit. So, cook uh, up the theremin again.
3: Yeah, I mean, what pedals do you have on your theremin bio, bio-, bio? Oh, oh, bio. oh, that would be telling. Okay. It's a pretty it's a it's obviously uh, I know you're never supposed to ask, but I mean, it's just it's it's fucking cool. That's what's going on well, th- right now. Well,
2: thanks. This th- this theremin is um I, I sort of got my con- my theremin concept from uh, watching Jimmy Page play when I was a kid That's okay. sort of where this came from. Let me tell you let me tell you something, okay? The- no, the- here's the- the- secret. okay. Theremin players are assholes. Why are they asking? Because they're really pretentious. uh, So many of them, and they want to play, you know, like like a Bach violin partita, you know, or or violin sonata, and be very, very precise. And I'm not into that. And they look down on people who who use it to make science fiction effects. And and, and bombs, and I've got this sort of splatter painting approach to doing it. I mean, I like to think it's very musical, and it's sort of the Greek chorus to what we're doing. But as an untrained, non-Juilliard theremin people, let me tell you, there's a lot of pretension in the theremin, the theremin community, such as it it is. It's
3: really cool. This is not like any theremin that I've ever seen. Not to say that's overcomplicated. It's it's very uh, simple and, and minimalist. It looks like a radio antenna.
2: Well, that's basically...
3: No, I know. I, I'm, well, I mean, for the people who can't see into the radio, I'm describing it as, well, as the, the, the outsider looking in, this is part of my job. Um, so what is the, uh, what are you going to play for us next?
2: Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, a lot of my book um, is about growing up in the 70s in, 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 in New Jersey. Uh, and I came to New York all the time. I was in a touch in New Jersey in the, where we were just uh, the other night in the center of my existence was the Touch and Train Station, because if you got on the Touch and Train Station, you could be at Penn Station, New York City, in 35 minutes. Uh, I think it was $3 round trip at the time. Um, I mean, I, I had this idea when you were living in New Jersey, there were two directions you could look. You could look forward, which to me was New York City, 30 minutes away. Or you look the other direction, which was like the football team and keg parties. And I've been to a few keg parties, you know, and I chased a couple of cheerleaders. But I think the answer, you know, you know lied more in, you know, in Manhattan than it ever was going to, uh, you know, spending the rest of my life in and But that being said, everything is about possibilities and to me, the 70s were a great time to grow up. It felt very wide open, like anything could happen. And I remember catching a frisbee at a David Bowie concert. 1978, it was the Heroes Tour, which may or may not sound like a major life event, but it was a very big deal. Rock concerts were happenings, and tossing Frisbees and beach balls through the giant clouds of marijuana smoke that filled the arena, man, that was an important part of the trip, and for David Bowie in 1978... Everyone had really stepped up their game. Women came dressed to this revival meeting. With tons of glitter, hot pants, platform boots, and tight Diamond Dogs t-shirts faded from the previous tour. And a lot of the men came out sporting the Aladdin Sane lightning bolt face paint. It was as if Jesus had fallen to earth. (laughs) The girl that asked me to go to the show... She was wearing denim overalls and no shirt. The bib and the straps just somehow managed to cover her nipples, and her breasts just hung there flawlessly, like some sort of middle finger in the face of gravity. And even in this crowd, she nearly caused a riot. I have no idea why I was invited. I was 14 years old. There were four of us. I was the youngest. But she held my hand when we got off the train and made it to our seats on the arena floor. Anyway, I caught the frisbee. And you always hoped that one would come your way, and if it did, you could be quick enough to catch it, because catching a frisbee was a lot more badass than just swatching at some big old gay beach ball. But before I could fling it back, the guy next to me said, Wait a second, dude. And he took the frisbee from me, he flipped it over, and poured a big pile of sparkling white powder on it. (laughs) So we all snorted along, and then I let the frisbee sail. And let me tell you, I can throw a frisbee with the best of them. It's one of the five things I do really well. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to huck a frisbee across the arena at Madison Square Garden, the most famous arena in the world, but it is truly something else. There's a lot of space. You can really air it out. And with what turned out to be wonderfully pure amphetamine percolating across my brain and David Bowie about to start the show, it was one of the finest, most crystalline moments of the entire decade. That was me living in the extreme present. And that's what my father never got. That's what this book is about. Never mind snorting mystery dust on a frisbee. At David Bowie concerts. It's about living in the moment. My father was always worried about what other people thought. He was so worked out and freaked out and fussing and fretting in fear of carbohydrates, in fear of salt, in fear of sugar, in fear of strippers jumping out of birthday cakes and goddamn who knows what. He was so worried about the future that he let the future be the enemy of the now. And like Bill Hicks once said, If you are living for tomorrow, you will always be a day behind.
3: Uh, What is one of the other top five things you're good at? (laughs) That would be be telling. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, so the book, uh, is awesome and the stories are really great and, um, Tell us. I know you touched briefly on the tour, um, but tell us a little bit more about the tour and like uh, what
2: uh, people can expect. Uh, literary mayhem uh, uh, I, I mean seriously like I said our, our thing was always it started I started with a bongo player on my first book and before I knew it I had a band with a lot of people uh, I mean, some, so many great people have been in and out of this band uh, John Spencer from the Blues Explosion has been one of my main collaborators who we made that first I have fun record with uh, Bob Burt uh, formerly of Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith <laughs> and when I say Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith I mean Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, of course <laughs> uh, is regular with us he plays with us all the time uh, Gary Lucas plays with us from Captain Beefheart and Jeff Buckley. Other members of Boss Hog, members of the Dictators, have been with us. I'm really fortunate. Um, we've had Howie Pyro play with Danzig and Degeneration. I work with Howie. Howie's the best, right? Yeah, he's amazing. He's the he's the greatest. He came out and played fuzz bass last time I was out in Los Angeles. So I'm really fortunate that all these great, you know, guys have gotten onto this because it's you know it's not it's not a rock band. It's something a little bit different. Yeah. Our biggest problem, of course, is explaining exactly what we do, because you tell people it's a reading, and they're like, you know, who the hell wants to come, but you tell them it's spoken word well Jell off we're already ruined that for everybody and fucking henry <laughs> rollins like two hours of like blah 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 you know, um you know this is what we do what we're doing here is what we bring and uh you are a complete disappointment on the road uh mickey's coming with me the great mickey finn uh and and, and it's great we're gonna come we're gonna knock everybody's socks off some nights we do longer sets we do some of the x-rated stuff sometimes we just kind of stick to the book depending on, on on the audience but uh what's some of the x-rated stuff the X-rated stuff. <laughs>
3: no, I mean I, I see. I mean I see that uh, <laughs> uh, for New well, York City uh, on the
2: 22nd, it's going to be at the X-rated set at the Treehouse. Well, you, you, you know, every day. <laughs> give me, give me, give me, hit a chord. <laughs> every day, I wake up and thank the Lord that sucking is not strictly a homosexual phenomenon. That's pretty much how the X-rated set starts. Okay. But be you homo or hetero, male or female, it is a mouthful. I mean, we've got a lot of good stuff. You know, I wrote, I wrote a book called Dirty, 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 which is kind of a history of sex on the newsstand. Yeah. I was very fortunate. I mean, I worked with uh, Hustler, um, and I worked. I was the editor of Screw Magazine. Uh, Al Goldstein was a good friend of mine, and I consider him a mentor. I wrote a lot of penthouse letters. So aside from the dope magazine, <laughs> I've, got, I've got sex magazines and, um, and wrestling magazines, too. That was my first job, working in the pro wrestling business. And the and the odd thing is... of all of that. My father always thought that the wrestling magazine was by far the most embarrassing to him personally. Huh. You know that. I mean, that's what talking about. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, drug magazine, porn magazine, wrestling magazine. Seriously, my son. <laughs> <laughs> um, well,
3: I want to thank you for coming. let we'll make sure we have time for one more. Um, where can people get the book? Um, where can people find
2: information about the tour? Uh, MikeEdison.com. It couldn't be easier. Mike Edson, be easier. All the tour dates are on MikeEdison.com. The book is available at Barnes and Noble. It's available on Amazon.com. Of course, I encourage everyone to support their local independent booksellers. Please, if you can, they are a dying breed. And booksellers and librarians are my fucking heroes, truly, because they're they're the ones. You know, they're they they're great. They keep this whole thing alive. Uh, we on the internet. We can be found once again. MikeEdison.com. I'm on Facebook. It's Mr. Mike Edison on Twitter and uh, Insta Picture Face. Uh, Moo boog. Uh, we're, we're out there, but please come out and see us in person. Yes, because we're troubadours. It's what we do. We go to your town and we bring stories and music and we and really, you know, we're like, we're like Grand Funk Railroad. We want to party it down with you. That's uh,
3: right. <laughs> well, I want to take a, a, a quick second to thank Mike and Mikey for for Mickey for coming out. Kavita, thank you so much for for joining us. Big shout out to my family. Happy Mother's Day to all the other mothers out out there. Uh, happy Mother's Day, hello Tornella, and hello to the newest addition to the Brezins family, Meatball the dog. All right, yeah, Meatball uh, coming in. Uh, oh my God!
2: You know the a central part of this book is about meatballs. Really? Uh, if, if oh really? If nothing, it is. if nothing else, you please buy. You are a complete disappointment for. A story that is generally referred to as the Great Meatball Pizza Incident. It's the worst fight I ever saw my parents get into in public over okay. a fucking pizza.
3: Well, I mean, you'll have to get the book to, to hear that. Um, or come come see us in come Just see next, us. next yes. week. Oh, okay. Um, what are you going to... Well, I mean, it's not really like take us out with a song, but what's the theme of what you're going to take us out with?
2: Well, it's actually a public service announcement. Okay. Uh,
3: <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, big shout out to Dave out there. Thanks so much, buddy. Um, we'll be back next week with a new episode Uh, Snacky Tunes. Mike, take us
2: away. Can you dig it? Well, have you ever been to Texas? Well, you better do right. Yeah, you better not gamble. Oh, Lord, you better not fight. All the police gonna get you. you guys right now about drugs, and I come to you not only with a fair amount of experience, but with a great deal of enthusiasm, from acid to ecstasy, from black beauties to yellow jackets, from codeine to quaaludes, from dust to dope, and from goofballs to grass. I've been on the merry-go-round. I have ridden the roller coaster in the tilt world too. I've been in the funhouse and the psychedelic shack. And there's hardly a drug I have met that I do not love. But today, I want to talk to you about speed. I want to talk to you about Biker Crank. I want to talk to you about the methamphetamine. Because friends, I heard it on the six o'clock news. So many people living in fear. Speed kills, they say. Methamphetamine will destroy you. And I am here to say that methamphetamine is not the problem. No, friends, the problem is daytime television. That's right, daytime television. Because methamphetamine is a fine drug. It's ten times cheaper than Coke, and it lasts a hundred times as long. Ask any rock and roll band worthy of the name, and they will tell you that amphetamines are a good thing, a grand thing, a beautiful thing, as long as they are used for what they are designed for. Driving trucks across the country. Winning wars and playing the bass in Motorhead. Yes, friends, and if it's good enough for Johnny Cash, then goddamn it's good enough for Mike Edison. The problem is, though, if you're using these amphetamines, if you are speeding and tweaking in your trailer, if you're watching Judge Judy, Oprah Winfrey, Jerry Springer, and The Price is Right, well then, no shit! Your teeth are going to fall out and your face is going to start looking like your ass. It's an ugly situation. Friends, what you need to know is that methamphetamine is not an activity. It's what you do when you're doing something else. LSD, that is an activity. Drinking beer, that is an activity. Smoking crack, friends, I'm going to give you that one too. But if you were going to partake of the speed of the biker crank of the methamphetamine, please stay away from Dr. Phil in the days of our lives, General Housewife and Desperate Housewives. What you need is an air hockey table. Or perhaps you could be in Afghanistan and carpet bombing the Taliban. The Midnight Special. Shine a light on me. Let the Midnight Special shining, it's everlasting light. All right. Thanks, SmackAtoons. Thank you, guys. Woo! Remember, speed is not an activity. It's what you do when you're doing something else. Let the midnight special shine, it's
1: talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio.